Heman. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, thanks for uh, reading my children's book. Yeah. Hosting that. I appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited. I have four groups of college students coming to Milwaukee over the month of March. So I'm going to read it to them. I just, I read it to one of my friends and like prayer partners this weekend. She was like, you know, some of your students aren't going to get it. I'm like, I know, but (laughs) that's okay. They'll, they'll might get it in a few years, you know, if they think back on it. So college students aren't going to get it. Wow. Um, Are you in Milwaukee, Wisconsin or Milwaukee, Oregon? I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah, I did. I lived in Oregon for three years in Portland, actually in Hillsdale. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, but I have been, so I've been in Milwaukee for like two and a half years now. And what do you teach? Um, I work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. So, yeah, so I run an urban program. I'm kind of like an auntie, you know, like I'm not their spiritual parent, full-time person, but they come to me every once in a while and I shake them up a little bit and send it back. That's kind of the thing, so. Are you in Milwaukee also or? I am. Well, I'm in Waukesha, so it's about 30 minutes, you know, west from Milwaukee, but... Waukesha, Milwaukee, those are all Indian names, right? Yep. But it's, we're trying to find, we got so many little particulars, so we got to have right. something we can live in. We got to have somewhere we can put a, a, a our learning center. It's got to be able to have enough uh, open space to be a farm. Um, we want it to be a little bit wild, not just like a farm set on five acres in the middle of all these other farms. You know, we want some some wildness to it, and that's hard to find. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Where are you calling in from tonight? I'm in Hood River. I'm just oh, sort of hanging. I'm hanging on the edges here because I want to hear the discussion, but it's been a while since I read the book. Okay, that's fine. Even if you haven't read the book, I think you'll enjoy the discussion. Andy is my friend and uh, my closest neighbor. He's only (laughs) an hour and 10 minutes away. Okay. Closest neighbor. I like that. (laughs) And he's, uh, his dad's been gracious enough to him to let us store all of our farm equipment there. So my, trailer with all my tractor and implements oh. and everything and all of our farm machinery and implements are all there at his place so oh that's wow really yeah it, it works well as a good as a good white man i've, I've sold most of it already <laughs> <laughs> all right just to make sure everybody is in the right place tonight we're hoping to talk about rescuing the gospel from the cowboys by richard twist so hopefully that's what you intended to tune into and uh, if you are interested, if you haven't had a chance, Randy and I uh, put out on our podcast, Piecing It All Together, yesterday, a tribute to Richard that included some audio of an address that Richard did in 2009. So uh, he is fresh uh, in our ears and on our mind and on our heart. And so I'm very happy to be engaging uh, his work um, on the seventh anniversary of his passing. So I'm, I'm enjoying uh, people's reflections and uh, hearing from people about uh, how much Richard meant to them. So I'm glad that you are all here tonight for this. Randy, are you getting good feedback on that episode so far? 
Yeah, I've, I've uh, had some good things said. Um, some of my former students in the NAICS program have made good comments. And, yeah. you know, if so, I'm guessing most people here didn't know Richard. Right. Um, but uh, of course, he was famous around university. Um, the, the first thing we should say, and the reason that we're doing this, is that Richard was one of those people who was larger than life. So it's like, when, when Richard passed on, everybody around said, not Richard. You know, we thought, you know, like Randy might have died with health concerns or, or somebody else, you know, but not Richard. It's, it was kind of like, Richard can't die. And so it was an incredible shock when he had a heart attack in Washington, D.C. when he was uh, traveling and, uh, and died there. So, um, you know, in, in right and really in his prime, right when he was hitting his stride, he was a uh, well-known um, speaker um, and uh, uh, very challenging. And uh, like I said, he was able to, uh, very charismatic, people listened to him wherever he went, but he was able to sort of put that knife in your ribs and, and tickle you with it. So that you were laughing at the same time that he was being very edgy, you know? So, um, so anyway, good to, it'll be good to hear what everybody thinks about what they've read. And tonight we're going to do the first two chapters, right? Is that yep. We're going to try. We'll at least get through the first chapter. See, depends on how long we'll have and how, uh, what rabbit trails we go down. But uh, yeah, that's the plan is to cover those first two chapters. All right. Well, I haven't done one of these before, Bo. I'm following your lead. Oh, okay. So generally what we do is that I'm, I'll open it up for like opening thoughts. And then uh, depending on where that takes us, I'll start reading some quotes, uh, just some highlights that I've made and just see if anybody has any um, comment on those if they if it sparks any um, interesting conversation and usually people have highlights that they've made or things that they want to talk about and so they sort of take the lead on that discussion uh, otherwise I just sort of plow through and highlight things that stood out to me and hope that it generates conversation so I figure between uh, all of the folks who are here tonight and uh, Randy you, you who know so much of this content in your bones. We will, I'm hoping we'll have no problem um, filling up a good conversation tonight. I have a like really specific question. If we okay. want just to throw yeah. it out there. Um, okay. At, I'm in the first chapter towards the end on page 51. And he's kind of, he says, he has this quote that says, that many missionaries unconsciously took with them the Western worldview that makes a sharp distinction between natural and supernatural realities. And when I read that, my initial thought was like, wow, I am having a hard time imagining a mindset that doesn't separate those two things, like supernatural and natural. And so I was actually wondering, Randy, if you could like help me imagine what that would feel like. That feels like a very difficult thing for me to imagine not separating those two yeah so i will but i want to welcome uh thomas is it hoklotubby uh hoklotubby but hoklotubby is probably the way you pronounce it correctly in oklahoma i was trying to think back <laughs> so uh welcome uh and uh thomas uh, should we say thomas 
Yeah, you know, in fact, I actually go by Chris. Thomas is my dad's name, and then they brought me home and realized we don't want two Toms in the house. Chris is fine. I probably should change my name up here. But okay. yes. Yeah. yeah, especially in the Indian home because that would be a Tom Tom. Tom Tom. <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. <laughs> so why do we have to s- separate that? Um, I, th- I think the reason we have to separate that is because of the dualism that's been Platonic dualism that's been passed down. And we have to have a binary in order to sort of um, understand life if you're a Westerner, right? But everything, you know, everything is sacred, right? Um, from an indigenous perspective. So, so um, natural, supernatural, earth, heaven, um, spirit, body, all of that is seen in the same way. And or at least I think that's what Rich is trying to say there. Um, so I think he's trying to, and there's a number of places where he tries to break down Western dualisms. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. Um, I think I'm just having a hard time imagining, like, specifically with natural and supernatural, like, how it would be to think about those things as one thing. Mm-hmm. So this is something I've had to do a lot of work in because I come from a charismatic background where supernatural was just like a, a second name, second language. It was assumed. And so I've had to sort of move out for me uh, of that worldview in order to make room for a more indigenous perspective. But the honest truth is a white guy with Western frameworks that I'm, I know that I'll never get there. Like I'm, I've been working on it for over 10 years and I see how little progress I've made. And so one of the things that I've sort of had to do is, um, is come up with a, almost a, a life hack, if you will, uh, that sort of just points me in the right direction. So I don't know how far I'll get in my lifetime uh, unlearning the supernatural worldview, but I have figured out a way to reorient myself um, that takes me in a different direction. So it just begins by saying that uh, the super Jesus did not believe in the supernatural, right? That was not a construct or something that he would have inherited. There is no Jewish concept for like spiritual. That division. Uh, is whether you, it starts in the Greek, the Greco-Roman world, but for us, it really comes through the Enlightenment. Uh, so it, the way that I start my deconstructive process is to say, Jesus didn't believe in this. And that's, so for me, that's step one. Then the second step is to say, and I'm not sure that it has borne good fruit for the last 500 years, and so the, the, for me, that's step two is to separate myself from that. Step three is then to try and embrace a more indigenous worldview that sees the living world as a, revel, a revelation of God. And not that I'm separate from it, but that I'm very much a part of it. So for me, that's step three. And then I just continue on that road to say things like, for instance, that something bad happened when... The, the more science could explain in our, in our enlightenment world, the more science could explain, the less we needed God. So the church really messed up by conceding natural science 
And then we would take everything that science couldn't explain as supernatural. Because the more science explains, the less we need God. We basically conceded to playing the rules by a game we're never going to win. And so, like, I just keep moving my way down that road. And uh, so for me, that has been part of the deconstructive process. So it starts with the fact that Jesus didn't believe it. It hasn't borne good fruit, that it's a concession the church made that was a losing game. And especially in our era, the more you can explain uh, as natural, the less supernatural there is in the world. So, and I just keep making my way down that road. So another way I think of it is if everything comes from creator, why separate into different, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there are two great extrinsic categories, natural and supernatural. It's like, mm-hmm. so you have to not really believe in the natural to believe in the supernatural. You, you, mm-hmm. you say, you know, I get this far, and then whatever happens beyond my reasoning, then that's supernatural. But the, the truth is, if it all comes from creator, it's all the same. It's all mm-hmm. the same source. So why mm-hmm. tag it differently? So what I do is I look in the mirror and I say to myself, there is no such thing as the supernatural. God's work is the most natural thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts? This is Lydia. Um, it just raises up in that uh, dualistic kind of phrase. And if, uh, where does that place evil and uh and such in in the natural world of creation. Uh, Because I know a lot of indigenous faiths have the masks and the the clowns and uh, to kind of do that balance of good and evil. Just, I don't want to take us down a rabbit trail, but that's where I came up with the question. I heard a good uh, or interesting perspective on this just a couple weeks ago that the... uh, if everything creator made is natural, then that which is unnatural is, or, or that which is supernatural is actually unnatural. It's not of God. And so that, that division actually creates a rather difficult context for us. You know, because we we tend to think of supernatural, and at least in my upbringing, as being those amazing things of God that happen in our midst, and so we end up discounting all the natural things, which are really supernatural of God. So, if we make that division, which our Western minds are trained to make, then. Um, well, it's sort of like we do with the separation of body and spirit. And I was listening to a sermon last Sunday, and it, there were all these divisions. It's like, you know, our problem with understanding theology and our relationship with one another is that we've packaged everything into these compartments and separated them. And that works really good if you're a scientist and you're trying to examine something specific. But like we're discovering in healthcare, when you when you separate the oncologist from the from the physical therapist, from the social worker, you know, we have all these different pieces. Unless they all come together, our body's a mess. They're all working on it separate. 
to do that with God and our and our lives with one another and with God. That's really good. I mean, it it is a problem when something good happens and we say, well, that's just natural. Like it's nothing special. But actually the natural is an amazing God-infused moment of possibility. And so when we discount that by saying, oh, it's just natural, we're worse off for it. Oh, well, we never answered uh, Lydia's question or addressed it about where then does evil fit into the supernatural? Um, and, uh, you know, uh, about the clans, clowns on the mass, uh, from what I understand of these cultures, right, the, the uh, Hopi clowns and uh, uh, kachinas don't necessarily represent evil. <coughs> per se, uh, uh, or not even per se, just they don't represent evil. They just represent balancing forces uh, that remind us of the purpose of uh, order. Um, they uh, uh, destabilize, they put checks and things, right? It's, it, it's kind of cross-culturally one of the jobs of the clown, right, is that we put things disarray and it makes you reflect upon why certain things are in their constructed order that they are. Um, but... I don't know if there's any singular answer to how then does um, this indigenous framework incorporate ideas uh, like Satan or demonic powers, uh, you know, just, just, just recently in that, that compilation volume coming full circle um, on the chapter of uh, sin, uh, Lisa Dellinger, maybe, right. She just, basically discounts the whole Christian tradition of, uh, of the devil basically says, you know, it's about being out of harmony and living outside of reciprocity with, uh, the spirits in the world. And, and that, that ultimately all sin and evil comes down to our own, uh, deprivation or our, our greed or selfishness. And so sin and evil then become metaphors for, um, uh, a lack of balance and evil in our own lives rather than a uh, uh, kind of an innate uh, a cosmic force that's inherent in the universe that, that takes up some kind of space and, or, or, or devils that are uh, behind closets. And, and certainly there, there, there are numbers of uh, Christians who would also, uh, you know, push back and, 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 and uh, right. When we talk about things that, uh, uh, well, I don't want to say things that Jesus believed, but second technical Judaism, right. Had this thick, demonology right jesus casting out demons and you know it, it's uh, uh our modern take and also you know the challenge of contextualization of then how do we interpret these things right was this demon or was this epilepsy right uh was this mental illness or was this a demon possession um right i, I think the answer is going to look different for our, each person to some degree yeah I, I don't know who that was you quoted but i think i agree with her um, mm -hmm. What was the name? I think it's, uh, if I recall right, uh, Lisa Dellinger. Um, she, uh, the Coming Full Circle, the edited volume by Stephen Charleston on Native oh. uh, American theologies. Okay, so um, so yeah, the 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 other purpose of the clowns is to serve sort of a prophetic role to point out not just imbalance, but to point out when people are like mm -hmm. making mistakes and things like that. I remember one time. Uh, uh, Choctaw friend of mine, um, Charles Robinson, were in Hopi land, and we were watching a bean dance from on top of the um, the uh, plaza. The plaza was down below, and all they were all dancing. and And the Kashari was uh, clown was um, like standing in front of this one guy, and and you know shaking his finger, and everybody was laughing. Of course, it was in Hopi, and we couldn't tell what's going on. 
Mm-hmm. So I asked my Hopi friend, I said, you know, I said, you know, what's he saying? And he's saying, oh, you claim to be such a, uh, a righteous person, but, you know, how come on Friday nights, you know, we see your truck behind widow so-and-so's house in the alley every Friday night, you know? And, uh, and so he was calling him out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a, a prophetic role. Uh, and then our, our Cherokee also, we had different uh, masks that, that, that also just, it's to bring out the, to show human beings that we're limited, um, to show that we have frailties and that we're vulnerable and, to, and that we can laugh at ourselves. So, um, so and, and laugh at other people and the, their frailties and their limitedness. And, and so, um, so a lot of our masks were of different peoples and they would imitate the traits that they did. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so, you know, all of that, it was the job of the, the clown to, to bring about balance, I think. But, and they're even used to, I remember a long time ago, there were clowns at powwows that, that, that did funny stuff too. But as I've dealt with different peoples across the United States and Canada, to see like a, we call, call them a demon or to say a bad spirit or good spirit, those are also seen as natural. Natural, you can talk to them natural just because you can't see them they don't reveal themselves to you doesn't mean that they're not there so just because they're quote-unquote invisible doesn't mean that they're not there the ancestors uh, same thing Uh, white people would say well that's supernatural but a lot of native people uh will say no that's just my ancestors with me and then you look stuff up in scripture and says we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses you know so emily what did you think of that little discussion you started well, that's helpful. I mean, yeah, I think I've never thought of the, like, if I'm like a church, you know, church speak perspective, like I've never thought about the natural supernatural dichotomy that critically until I read that. And I was like, Oh yeah, why do we do that? And how do I not do that? So that's helpful. Lydia, what did you think of the discussion about evil and masks? I liked it, and what it pointed up to me is is a misspeak on my part, uh, kind of coming out of that synchronism, uh, syncretism that uh, is kind of a um, Western missionary thing, that if it's a mask, it's evil. And I realized that in my reading, that's, thank you, Chris, for pointing out the, the role of the clown as moral speakers. I thought, and I that, so that really helped, but um, it just uh, increases my questions about syncretism, uh, which has been plaguing me for about 20 years. <laughs> ah, very good. I'm happy to hear about which passages you thought were especially interesting, Bo. Well, if no one else has opening topics, we will begin. We're just going to start and sort of walk through of the book. So what I do is I, I'm more like an auctioneer on these evenings where I just sort of call out page numbers and then uh, say something I find interesting on that page and see if anyone else resonates with that or wants to follow up with it. So the first thing uh, is right in the, in the preface. It says contextualization. It's in the, the third paragraph down. Contextualization is a relational process of theological and cultural reflection within a community. 
seeking to incorporate traditional symbols, music, dance, ceremony, and ritual to make faith in Jesus a truly local expression. That is actually a really dense sentence, but I find it fascinating that a right off the bat contextualization is placed within the community's authority, not the missionary outsider slash visitors authority. And that just that one single distinction would have literally changed the last 500 years of American church history. That one change that if Christian believers within a community were empowered and entrusted to, to guide and lead that community through the process of contextualizing instead of the outside missionary organizations having final say in authority, what a difference that would have made. But dang, that just goes back to like church history. Yep. Like, I don't know, the middle ages or something. And definitely like the authority, external authority was carried into the Reformation. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this, the like ways that I have been taught not to trust my own gut, not to trust my own internal authority. I'm what, 42 and just now discovering that my body has something to tell me. My bones have something important to tell me. And our community has something to tell each other when we can, you know, be with, enjoy, lament, live life together. I mean, yeah, community having authority is great, but the history we came from says you can't trust yourself. I mean, this is all total depravity, right? You're just like... The heart is deceitful, desperately wicked, and totally without hope until someone from outside comes in and saves you. I mean, yeah. It's amazing how powerful those, those concepts are. You know, I jokingly tell people, I don't believe in total depravity. I believe in sufficient depravity. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean for you? How do you define that? It's not total. It's just enough that I need to you know, be concerned. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's funny as a, as a Methodist, a United Methodist, one of the things I was very excited about coming in is that they have this thing called the Wesleyan quadrilateral that mm. they've developed in the last 50 years, where you start with scripture, then you go to tradition, then you go to reason, and you end up with experience. And those four things are, they inform uh, communal decision making. Mm-hmm. And it was funny that when I came in, I had the zeal of the convert and I was like, let's do the Wesleyan quad. Like that was going to fix all of our problems. And it was amazing because Methodists would say to me, but what if that community comes to different conclusions than the institutional church? And I'd say, mm-hmm. no, 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 that's the danger. But that's the whole point of the quad. And I came over here because of the quad. <laughs> but it's funny that even within institutions that have decision-making rubrics like that, we don't mm-hmm. trust the people of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've, I've got a quote. I mean, I don't 
I don't have it. It's on YouTube. I can share with you guys. But Walter Brueggemann saying, when we think of those four pillars of forming theology, often when we think of experience, I mean, for the many, for the last few centuries, it's just been like white Eurocentric male experience. He's like, we've been calling ourselves objective. We're objective scholars. And yet they like can't even see their own perspectives that they're coming from. So yeah, as long as my experience matches the white man's experience from 500 years ago, then maybe I'm okay. Right. I'm being sarcastic. (laughs) Yeah. I'll just say Jana quickly. I have been learning a lot as a minister on how to trust myself and it's been really hard. So you saying that helps me understand part of why it's been so hard for me. So (laughs) thank you for what you shared. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. If any of you are super nerdy, there is really good work being done in the field of practical theology uh, by feminist scholars on the work. Uh, look up the word phronesis, P-H-R-O, phronesis. I can even send you a link if you want, but it's an embodied wisdom. So it's part of those Greek words that gets translated wisdom, but it's the one that didn't come into English. So like techne became technical and theria became theory. And so many Greek concepts of wisdom came into English. Phronesis is noticeably absent and it's the embodied wisdom. I just wondered if it surprised anyone um, how fearful um, people both white and native are are of um, this uh, for lack of a better word right now, we'll say native contextualization. I mean, when you read the letter from the camp director and, you know, the the different denominations that constructed letters against us and all that thing, was that surprising to anybody? No, I would have been right there a few years ago. (laughs) Hopefully several years ago, but... I mean, it fits right into the context that I... Grew up and even even in the Mennonite context that I adopted, I think that there was a bit of that going on. It made me sad, and the clever t- uh, 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 turn of phrase toward the end of this chapter, right? It, it turns out at some point you also have to rescue the gospel from the Indians themselves. Sorry, that's the uh, end result of colonization, mm-hmm. self hatred. Mm. Me, I found it particularly striking the. Um, the, you know, Jane Doe that he was in contact with that she made the comment about the Lord has asked us to take a very strong stand and how oftentimes that language is, I think, used and abused to, I guess, manipulate situations. And I know that I've seen similar attitudes in a lot of the churches that I've been a part of in the recent years. So I guess it wasn't it it didn't feel surprising to me. I think just sad again that this continues to be a reality. Those are some of my thoughts on it. Yeah, thank you for that. That's on page eighteen. If you're still mm-hmm. looking for it, and and the they had been these are white folks, but they had been instructed by Native Christians to not allow us 
to bring that quote-unquote syncretism and mm. so stand against it. So. See, that part didn't come out of the book. <laughs> that what? Oh, that part I, you, you couldn't glean from the book here, that there's actually Native Christians behind this, yeah. uh, behind the whites. Yeah, I, I was a part of all that whole letter and everything that happened. So yeah. We first started trying to book it for our Nate's meeting. And, yeah. um, and then and, and I was actually the one who first called because I was the only local one in the area here. So, mm-hmm. and got this resistance and Richard had a past relationship with these people. So when he said, well, let me talk to him. And that's where this letter came about. Yeah. Mm. But they had mentioned in, in this back and forth that, uh, that there were other native Christians who were against what we were doing and that they felt they were right. So on page 23, the last sentence of the second paragraph, or the first indent, um, says, instead of embracing Jesus as the creator, the majority of Native Americans blame American Christianity and the church for the loss of their own culture and identity. Is it any wonder that the vast majority of Native people today reject Christianity as the white man's religion? This for me was a reminder of uh, something that you could hear the pain and agitation and frustration in Richard's voice. And uh, when I read that, I just, I know that that was his heart. It's just that loss of uh, both possibility, but also because of the blindness of the missionaries who didn't realize or didn't, couldn't acknowledge that they were um, importing and evangelizing for their culture as well. And just that just sentence just really popped out to me. Well, yeah, and I was thinking of Hudson Taylor and, and some of those where they went in and completely adopted. Of course, I haven't looked at that from this perspective to see if they completely adopted some of the cultural stuff that still infused the, the Western aspects, and I'm sure they did. Yeah, and plus, we love our missionary stories. They're sacrosanct. You know, we're not allowed to mess with those, right? Because, and, and often people did sacrifice a lot. And so we hold those people up. You know, the church holds, holds those people up as, as sacred. They're not, they're not to be messed with. But the truth is, is, you know, when you read the accounts of some of these guys like um, John Elliott and, you know, Unipero Cerro, uh, who was, um, uh, just sainted in 2015 by Pope Francis, you know, these were horrendous people, you know, stuff that we look at now and we go, you know, how could we have uh, venerated these people? Um, David Brainerd, who's supposed to be the great missionary to the Indians, you know, would, would make statements like they're dumb as garden poles, you know? Um, And, but I think what Richard is saying here is, let me read a, paragraph I can in page 25, he says, the modernist assumptions resulted in the church's inability to represent Jesus Christ appropriately to the host people of the land. Thus came the failure in the form of biblical indigenous faith among the tribes of North America. This hegemony has not dissolved nor disappeared over time, but instead continues as a major problem plaguing the work of the church among First Nations people However, some Native ministry leaders have begun to address this problem with bigger wisdom and courage, and that's the point of this book. So 
it was, if you've already got all the answers, why do you need to look anywhere else? You know, if you've already got the gospel, quote unquote, right, why look somewhere else for it? Um, so Bo and I, and I don't know if everybody knows it, but um, by the end of this month, we'll have a book out together that has a lot of our sort of theologies in it. It's uh, a lot of post-colonial thinking theologies, and it's called the Decolonizing Evangelicalism, an 11.59 p.m. conversation. So, <laughs> so that should be out uh, by the 1st of March, something like that, through Whip and Stock. Okay. We fixed our final footnote today. Nice. Ah. But I think there's more of my theology in that than probably the... Gosh, congratulations. It's just Congrats. a little short book, too. It's only, uh, you know, preface, introduction, four chapters, and conclusion. So um, we didn't want to write a real thick book. Uh, it's It's got enough content in it that we're, it warrants four chapters is fine. Yeah, mm-hmm. very Trinitarian. That's awesome. <laughs> four directions. <laughs> there are, there's a history of... Uh, little four chapter books that make trouble. So we went with that. Good. I look forward to reading that. Yeah. Well, thank you all thank you. for tuning in tonight. It's so nice to see some uh, new faces and meet new friends. And for those of you who have been uh, ongoing conversation partners, we want to say thank you. And for those of you who support us on Patreon, we say thank you for that. It helps us a ton. Uh, to pay for the hosting fees and everything. So we just want to say thank you. But mostly we really enjoy the conversation. It's why we started this, is to have nights like this. Great. Thank you for putting it together. Thank you. Thanks so much. And you well, we'll see you on the journey. Oh. Emily, would you stay on for a minute? I wanted to ask you something yeah. about the children's book. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Bye. See you well, everyone. All right, see you guys.